You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. It's vital that we have a personal prayer life. And I mean vital. Don't hear the cliche, hear the word. It's necessary for life that we have a personal, private prayer life. We should be praying together as a church. We should be praying together in our marriages. We should be praying with our families. We should be praying with our kids. We should be praying with our prayer partners in our small groups, in our ladies' group, in our men's group. We should be praying together. But we need to spend time alone with God, with no one else there. We need to pray on our own, somewhere where it's hard to be found where it's hard to be interrupted and where there's nothing to distract us from one of the most wonderful privileges we have as Christians. One of the most important things that you can do with your life, spend time in private prayer with God. Jesus expects it. He says in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. But he didn't just expect it, Jesus did it. And in the passage today, Mark continues his his unfolding description of the ministry of Jesus um, by describing what happened on the rest of the Sabbath day that we looked at last week. After Jesus had preached in the synagogue with authority, after he cast out the demon with with a word, what happens the rest of the day? He goes back to Simon Peter's house. There he's expecting almost certainly a meal to be prepared. But Simon's mother in law, who would have done the preparation, is sick. He heals her. As soon as the Sabbath is over and people are allowed to travel and wander about, a huge crowd descends on the house because they've heard what happened in the synagogue and maybe there's a little boy spying through the window when he healed Simon Peter's mother. Somehow the news has got out and this crowd descends on the house and the the dam bursts. You know those pictures you get sometimes in films or something where a crack appears, doesn't it? And a bit of water trickles through and suddenly a rushing water. A dam bursts on Jesus' ministry. This, this moment of alone with Simon Peter's mother is like a, you know, it's like the click of a lock before a, the, ba- the bank vault door swings open, you know, and the, all the, the treasures revealed. It's like the, the little one, two, three, four, the, of the drummer, right? At the beginning of a, of a set of music. And then suddenly everything springs to life. From this moment on, it is nonstop. He's not just showing us that it's the beginning. He's showing us that it's a typical day in the life of Jesus' ministry. The relentless press of people, the sheer overwhelming need that was there, physical and spiritual, and the oceans of compassion that drove Jesus to to pray and to be with people day after day after day for three years. And and what do we find in the middle of this day, in the middle of this 24-hour period, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke tells us, just in case anyone misses it in Mark, in the corresponding part in the Gospel, Luke 5.16, Jesus often (laughs) withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What's the message that Mark is getting over to us? Jesus didn't just feel like spending time in prayer. He needed to. To do what he'd been sent to, to complete his mission as a man, Jesus needed to pray alone. And if he needed to pray alone, then so do you. So I want to give us three big reasons 
why we need to pray on our own, why we need to have a private prayer life. And then we'll finish with a few short applications. So number one, we need to pray privately because we are not like Jesus. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? And that's the first thing that kind of springs to mind for me. I don't know about you, what does it take, think about this question, what does it take for your heart to break for somebody? When was the last time you you cried seeing something? I I cried two days ago when I saw the the end of a a trial. This guy, he was a a physiotherapist, I think, for the US gymnastics team. And he's been put in prison for for all sorts of horrible things that he did to to little girls who were in his care. And one of the, one of the girls that he abused, who is now a grown woman, is a Christian. And she, she stood up in the court and she, she confronted him with the stuff that he'd done. And she basically said, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to know forgiveness. I pity you. I extend my forgiveness to you. You need Jesus. And it was just so powerful in a courtroom. Incredible. I, I, my heart broke when I visited, uh, Ganonimous family. I think yours did too, Charles. You know, to see that poverty. My, I might cry when I see something like comic relief. In fact, the sad truth is I would probably avoid watching comic relief because I'll cry. <laughs> but here's the, the horrible truth. For me, and I suspect it's the same for you, is my heart doesn't break as much as it should. We are surrounded by brokenness. We are surrounded by people who deep chasms of need, and yet we don't see it. Sin, the reason why is sin blinds us to it. We cannot see, because of our brokenness, we cannot see the eternal value of the people around us. We're blind to their value before God. We cannot see them as God sees, and we cannot love them like God does. But Jesus could. We are not like Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Jesus could. It says in the Bible that he was a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows because of the cross, a man of sorrows because of the burden he carried, all those things. But a man of sorrows because he was moved with a compassion that we just know a tiny little bit about. My heart breaking for one family here or one piece of news there. Jesus' heart must have broken a thousand times a day as he looked upon each person made as a child of God in the image of God. And, and, and how, and he saw how far they were away from him. We see it in this passage, his tenderness towards Peter's mother-in-law. You know, it's this lovely, touching, uh, first person account. Probably comes from Peter himself. He took her by the hand and raised her up. This crowd of people who come and descend upon the house. What does the Bible say? He healed them all. How long was he there? You know, this wasn't like 20 people at the front of a conference or five people at the end of church. This was a town's worth of people there because something was happening, you know, and he healed them all. It must have taken a, a long time. And, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a Benny Hinn crusade. He wasn't waving his blazer and people falling over. He wasn't going, you're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. This was Jesus. He was spending time with each of them, talking to them, getting to know them, praying with insight and, and prophetic power. It must have been a long time. And then he did it again and again and again. If we want to live in communion with God, giving him glory and fulfilling the call on our lives, if we want to know God's love and overflow with God's love like sons of God, then we have to see the world the way Jesus sees it. We have to see through the eyes of love. And for that we need to spend time alone with God. Alone with God. Because there... I want to suggest to you 
in private prayer more than anywhere else, we can ask God to heal us of the effects of our sin that blind us to the value of people. You know, if you're ill or something like that, and uh, when you're around other people, you might display some symptoms, you know. I've been limping for a few months now. You might have something, and you might let on there's something going on. And, and you might let on because, you know, you know people care about you. Uh, but there's no need to explain all your symptoms to the people that are around you, is there? You know, you don't, you don't, you're not usually brutally honest or clinical, let's say, about the, the sicknesses that are going on in your life. But when you go to the doctor, there's no point messing around, is there? You're not there to chat to him about, oh, yeah, it's quite hard. Or, you know, tell him. He wants to know exactly how you feel. And that, I think something like that happens when we spend time alone with God in prayer. You know, when we pray in a group, we pray differently. We pray differently. And not necessarily for bad reasons. You know, when we're praying together in church, we want to edify the people. We want to make sure people understand what we're saying and why we're saying. We want to lift other people's hearts to God. There are all sorts of things going on. It's not just us and God. And that's okay. And sometimes there are bad reasons to you. Sometimes it's hypocrisy and or vanity and all that sort of thing. But, you know, all those things mixed together. But we're not completely ourselves. We're not completely brutally honest with God when we're praying in a group. But when we come alone to him, it's like we're alone with the doctor and we can just tell him what's going on. You know, so my... Public prayer might be something like, Almighty God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Your bountiful gifts, all that sort of thing. But it's nonsense to pray like that when you're alone, isn't it? My private prayer is something like this. Lord, I've got nothing to say to you today. <laughs> Lord, I'm a mess today. I've had days when my private prayer has amounted to one word, help. I've had to, you know, or, or, or it's, you know... I, Lord, I can't pull myself together to spend time with you. Or it's, Lord, this is all I can manage today. Or, Lord, I I don't want to pray to you today because I've sinned and I know that if I pray to you, I won't sin anymore. And I kind of want to. When we come alone to before God, we are brutally honest with him. We are forced into, I think, a genuine humility before God, a real assessment of ourselves. And that's so important because when we do that intentionally, And when we focus on actually speaking to him, all that pretense falls away. It's like the scaffolding coming off a building and we are left with a simple choice. Fake it with God, which is pointless because he sees everything. (laughs) Or be honest. Be real and acknowledge. Nothing in all creation is hidden from your sight, Lord. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of whom uh, we all must give account. And when we're honest with him like that, when we're open with him like that, as we only can be when we're alone with him, something incredible happens. He answers. The publican, the tax collector and the Pharisee. One of them's praying like everybody's watching. Thank you, Lord, I'm not this man. And the other guy, tax collector, is praying like nobody's watching. As far as he's concerned, it's just him and God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who went home justified? The tax collector. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, forgives us and purifies us from all unrighteousness. When do we do that? Supremely, I would suggest to you, when we are alone with God. When we confess our brokenness to him, our inability to love, uh, when we confess our blindness to his goodness, when we come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I want to love like you, but I, I can't. I can't even love the guy in the next car along from me. 
I can't, I can't even love my family. Lord, I am blind. When we come and confess it to him, he doesn't go, yeah, you are. What are you doing here? He heals you. That's really good news. He heals us of our weakness, of our ignorance, of our foolishness, of our idolatry, our lack of self-control, our cowardice, our inconsistency. We can lay it all out before him in brutal honesty and the great physician pours his healing into us. The great English evangelist Leonard Ravenhill said this, a sinning man will stop praying. A praying man will stop sinning. So we need to pray on our own with God because we're not like Jesus, but because we want to be. Amen? That's the first, first point. We also need to pray because we are like Jesus. <laughs> That's what we see in the next two points. We need to pray alone with God to be truly human. Prayer is not, and I, I'm sure if you said to someone, they say, of course it's not. But if you think about it, I think often we think of it like this. Prayer is not a result of the fall. Prayer is not a consequence of sin. It's a part of how we were designed to live. Adam walked alone with God in the garden before sin entered the world. And the next time we meet a perfect man in the Bible, what is he doing? Thank you, Mark. He is praying. So prayer isn't just like going to the hospital. It's like eating or breathing. It's not something you do when you're sick. It's something you do to keep well. So prayer alone with God is an essential part of being human. And two more points in the passage show us why. Secondly, our, our second point then, we need private prayer because it gives us power to live normally. <laughs> Often we think of prayer giving us supernatural power, but I want you to think about it this morning like this. Prayer helps us to live normally. Because we were designed to live in the first place in intimate relationship with God. So even if we'd never sinned, even if we are healed from all our imperfections and weaknesses, even if that blindness we talked about a minute ago was all taken away, we would still need to pray in order to live normally the life that God intended us to live. Uh, a few years ago, Abby and I and the kids, we visited a theme park in little theme park in Wales in the middle of the woods somewhere and had this little gimmicky thing called, it was a gravity-powered roller coaster. I know that takes some thinking, but most roller coasters aren't just gravity-powered. <laughs> they have gravity involved. But And um, yeah, it was a bit of a gimmick. And basically you had to walk up this big hill and you get in the roller coaster at the top and gravity, the weight of the people, pulls you all the way down to the bottom and then it ends up on this platform. You stand on this platform and the weight of the people in the roller coaster pulls the platform down and pulls the roller coaster back up to the start position. And was it any good? Not really. <laughs> it was a bit naff. <laughs> There's just no way you can generate the speed necessary to create a really cool roller coaster from the potential energy of the people themselves. It's just not enough. For that, you need an external power source. That roller coaster was okay, but it wasn't great. And we weren't designed to live lives that are okay, but not great. The burden of Jesus' ministry is, the weight of it is at the forefront of Mark's um, portrait here. It is hard work. And yet Jesus has the strength not only to go to Capernaum and to all the other places, not only to speak, not only to minister, 
to teach, to pray, to cast out demons, to carry the great burden of his secret mission across. He has the strength to do all those things. He's able to pour out his life, not because he is the second person of the Trinity, but because as a man, he is in relationship with his Father, full of the Holy Spirit. He, he lives as a normal human being, unfallen human being, and is able then to pour out his life. We, to live normal lives as God intended us to live, are called to pour out our lives for others. Each of us in different ways, different situations, to different people, through different gifts. But our job, Jesus says, is each in our own way, according to our vocation, take up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life and follow me. Pour out your life in this extraordinary way. Not by your potential only but through the external power source of prayer. That is normal living, isn't it? That's what God calls us to. And as we do that, we experience normal human life, communion with God, full of his life, overflowing with this external power, growing, growing ever deeper in the knowledge of God. That's a, the second purpose of private prayer. And in one sense, it's enough just to make that point, that we need the strength of private prayer. But I want to unpack that just in a little bit more detail. Because I think there's something really important and beautiful in the middle of that, that we don't talk about enough. When we come to pray, and we just pray, just praying strengthens us. When we come before God and we pour out our heart to him in petition, when we intercede for others, when we bless his name, when we praise him, when we meditate on his word or on his perfections, that strengthens us, yes. When we pray in tongues, that strengthens us. But there's one particular aspect of prayer that strengthens us, I think, more than all the others. And there's a type of prayer that is a gift from God to us, not something that we choose to do, but something that happens when we make time to be alone with him. It comes from God, not from us. When we persevere in spending time alone with God, when we do it deliberately, when we do it attentively, there in that place we experience a closeness with him that is unlike anything else. It is as though we see his face, not with our eyes, but not with our minds even, but with our spiritual eyes. Easier to experience than to explain. But we know that it's real. It's like we're able to gaze on him with our souls. It's it's like a foretaste of heaven. It fills our minds with ideas about him. It fills our hearts with love for him. It fills our hearts with his love for us. And in that place of aloneness with God, an almost silent, unspoken conversation occurs between God and a person made in God's image. And in that exchange, his Holy Spirit pours into our hearts and we are brought to life in a way that I don't think we find almost anywhere else in the Christian life. You know, that experience is not all that it means to have a relationship with God. But a relationship with God is certainly not less than that. It's at the heart of it. A relationship with God is all of our lives. The whole of life is a temple where we experience God's glory. But in our personal relationship, there is a holy of holies, a center where we experience spiritual communion with God that fills and makes sense of every other part of life. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when he is upon his knees and comes face to face with God. This is, I think, this communion with God that happens when we're alone with him is what Paul was talking about when he says in 2 Corinthians, we with unveiled faces behold the Lord. It makes us shine with his love and power. It's what the psalmist longs for when he writes, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Or it's what he's talking about when he says, uh, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He's not just thinking about having great thoughts, folks. He's thinking about communion. We need to spend time alone with him. The uh, Christian mystics called it contemplation. Not meaning that it's a place where we think about God, but where God opens our eyes and we see him. One of them said this, contemplation is nothing else but a secret, peaceful, and loving infusion of God, which if admitted, which if let in, will set the soul on fire with the spirit of love. The Puritans, those great 16th, 17th century uh, devout, devotional Christians called it the secret place. And this is a quote, this is pretty typical of their attitude. It comes from something quite formal sounding called the Directory for Family Worship. They loved writing things like that, but anyway. But listen to this, it's so precious. For secret worship, first, it is most necessary that everyone, apart and by themselves, be given to prayer and meditation. The unspeakable benefit whereof is best known to them who are most exercised therein. That means you know why it's important if you do it. (laughs) This being the means whereby, in a special way, communion with God is entertained and right preparation for all other duties is obtained. And therefore it becometh not only pastors within their several charges to press persons of all sorts to perform this duty morning and evening. That's what I'm doing right now. And at other occasions, but it also incumbent to the head of every family, men, to have a care that both themselves and all within their charge be daily diligent therein. (laughs) All that to mean... This is the most precious thing that we can encourage each other to do, to spend time alone with God. So why is this prayer alone so important? In this communion, this life-giving fire descends into our souls. And it's the power, a power that we were made, created to channel. It's power that flows from communion with God and the Spirit poured into our hearts. And that, folks, is normal human living. That's what we were designed to have. So prayer strengthens us. Thirdly, prayer guides us. You know, we have uh, these days more choices than ever before. I thought I'd do a little experiment. I, I thought, imagine if I want to make some spaghetti bolognese and uh, fresh tomatoes and, and spaghetti and uh, some minced beef. I go to Tesco's and I look for the ingredients. What choices do I have? Well, tomatoes, let's have a look. I have a choice between. Tesco salad tomatoes, Tesco cherry tomatoes, Tesco finest piccolo cherry tomatoes, Tesco baby plum tomatoes, nightingale or cherry tomatoes, and nightingale baby plum tomatoes, Tesco finest sugar drop tomatoes, Tesco large on the vine tomatoes, Tesco beef tomatoes, Tesco sweet vine ripened tomatoes, Tesco finest mixed baby tomatoes, Tesco finest cherry bell vine tomatoes, Tesco finest mini San Marzano tomatoes, they sound good, Tesco finest pink tomatoes, 
Tesco Tricolor Tomatoes, Fair Trade on the Vine Tomatoes, Tesco Finest Orange Rapture Tomatoes, Tesco Organic Cherry on the Vine Tomatoes, and there were more. <laughs> the tin to- all the tin tomatoes. There are 10 choices of minced beef from the fresh, uh, from the butcher in Tesco, or the refrigerated food section. 15 choices of spaghetti. That is a potential 2,700 potential combinations. <laughs> yeah, that's before we talk about garlic and seasoning and all that stuff. Goodness me. All of them sold at all different prices. All mixed in with special offers. Sold to me by someone who was trying to rip me off, let's be frank. I don't have to even go to the shop and browse. I can flick through at my leisure online. How do I choose? Choice is exhausting. Choice is exhausting. You know, actually, uh, scientists who study the brain and the way our minds work actually say choice is quite literally exhausting. It's exponentially more effort for us to choose between options than to do something out of habit, which is why kids love routine so much. Why they get so grouchy when you break their routine. Because they're having to work so hard to process all the information that they hadn't expected. That's why I love Aldi so much. Last plug from the pulpit, I promise. So, that's just spaghetti bolognese. Okay, seriously, then what about the important things? How, how do we parent our kids? You know, where, where do I go to find out that information? How do, I, how do I find out what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? How do I flourish in my marriage? How do I find a, a spouse? You know, there's this thing they discovered that people are less willing to commit to a, a lifelong partner. Now, we're not talking about Christians, just generally, because of dating apps. It's so easy to find someone with an app where you can just go, oh, I quite like that person, but there's always one more. You can always look at the next profile, the next profile, the next profile. There's always someone around the corner that people get into a relationship, they start to get to know someone, they think, oh, quite, I might like this person. But in the back of their mind, it's so easy to find somebody else that they can't settle down with it. There's so much choice. How do I find a spouse? How do I grow as a Christian? How do I live out my faith at work? How do I, what sermons do I listen to? Apart from Jeff's, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are others. <laughs> For me, preparing this sermon, what commentaries should I read? I have a choice of thousands, well, not thousands, hundreds of commentaries on Mark, hundreds of preachers who preached it in this way and that way. How to actually preach a sermon, so many different ideas. How do we choose? And then the, but the most serious thing, of course, and the thing that underlines it all is, how, in terms of loving others, how do we do that? Imagine if we could see the world like Jesus saw it. Imagine if we were strong to serve as Jesus was. So we had his sight to see how valuable people were. We were full of the Holy Spirit. How do we know what to do to pour out our energy where, where would we put it? How did Jesus know what to do? As many people as Jesus healed, he didn't heal every disease in Israel. He didn't cast out every demon. He didn't cleanse every leper. He didn't preach the gospel to every person. He didn't have a life-changing conversation with every truth seeker in Israel. How did he know what to do? Mark is showing us. Jesus prayed on his own with his father. There's this overwhelming need just in Capernaum. He was up late into the night. He healed everyone who came, Mark tells us. And yet in the morning, there were more. They were looking for him. 
They brought more sick people, more demon-possessed people. And the disciples just assumed it was going to carry on like yesterday. The disciples come to tell him, seems to me almost like they're trying to guilt trip him. Everyone is looking for you. You, you must have expected this as a kind of negative connotation in the way that they, they communicate their desire. They're in a panic about what to do next. Jesus' work in Capernaum isn't finished. The, the implication is almost like they're saying Jesus is trying to hide from his responsibility because there's so much left to do. That's not what he's doing. He's not hiding because he's overwhelmed. He's spending time alone in prayer because he needs to know what to do next. So having spent the morning with his father in private prayer, he is clear-minded and resolute against all the pressures. He says, no, we're not going to Capernaum. We're going to go to the neighboring towns. This is why I've come. So clear, isn't it? So straightforward. And you know, the same is true for us. In a world of almost limitless choice, when we spend time alone with God, we gain understanding of how we can love, of what we should do with our time and our energy. Private prayer gives us guidance. It's important to think about how that guidance works in the Christian life. And it's worth saying why private prayer is so important in that regard. So I want to contrast two ways that we often think about guidance and prayer and just talk about what's really going on. So sometimes we think that um, prayer alone in a solitary place gives us space to think so we can think through problems and actually we can reflect. And, you know, secular versions that exist, mindfulness, that sort of thing. I, you know, I think it's good. Anyone who wants to take space to think and reflect, whether it's journaling or, you know, just walking and quieting your mind, those are really good things to do. But let's be clear, that's not prayer. But often we think it is because we're quiet and all that sort of thing. And sometimes we think about God and, what, and so on. So that's not prayer, but it is and something important that we should do to think. You know, we're made in God's image after all. Uh, another way to think about guidance and prayer is we, and I've used this example before, so forgive me if it's uh, wearing a little thin, but the, the idea that somehow we are like a remote control cars, let's say, uh, with broken antenna. And God is frantically wiggling his uh, little paddle thing to make us go forwards and backwards and left and right so that we know what to do. But we're not listening properly. Our antenna's broken. But if we just tune in, then we'll get very precise and exact instructions on what we should do. So when we spend time alone with God, we can hear those instructions and then he tells us what to do. Well, I think we fall back on those two ideas of how guidance works because they're actually quite close to what really happens. They kind of describe our experiences quite accurately. You know, last week we talked about how we're free and we're made in God's image. That means he wants us to choose out of understanding. Understanding is important. Reflection is important. He wants us to be prudent. He wants us to think and reflect. He wants us to journal and to think clearly and all those things. You know, Proverbs 13 says, In everything, the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. So we're supposed to act with understanding. And many of us, as we go into our day, without any of that reflection. It's like at school we used to um, try and drown each other in a swimming pool. As boys, this is, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And we would hold each other under the water for as long as we could. And then, you know, when we think we'd gone too far, we'd let go. And then the person you were trying to drown would emerge from you know. How many of us are like that when we start our day? Wake up as if someone, you know, and all the troubles of the day just rush in and we're gasping for breath and we're, you know, panicking. God wants us to be 
quiet and reflective and have an understanding of what we're going to do. He doesn't want us chaotic. And yes, space and solitude and silence enable us to do that. But we're not just thinking on our own. When we pray, we're thinking along with the Holy Spirit. And that's the really important difference. You know, it's not just about thinking clearly. It's about the Holy Spirit inspiring and illuminating. It's like it, we've got a map and we don't know which way to go. And the Holy Spirit, he points out all the highlights. And he point, points out some of the possible routes. And he opens up to us our understanding. It's not just about giving us specific instructions. So we experience God speaking to us in prayer as well. We do, aside from that kind of opening of our understanding, God does actually speak like the antenna thing, right? Where he gives us specific instructions, uh, bringing to mind particular scriptures or prompting us to do specific things or calling to mind people or saying that we should pray about something or sometimes placing new ideas in our mind, giving us understanding. You know, I've had times in prayer when I've been thinking about something and it's like God has just explained something to me and I've laughed out loud. I'm like, oh yeah, I get it now. And it definitely wasn't from me. You know, it wasn't my brain doing the work. It was God speaking. He gives us words of wisdom to speak into people's lives. He gives us words of knowledge and so on. And when we make space to spend time alone with God, that sense of him communicating with us is real. We bring those things together, and that's how private prayer gives us guidance. It leads us to both those things. It gives us space to reflect and think along with the Holy Spirit and for him to teach us and prompt us and guide us. It's, to give an illustration, it's as though we're like musicians in God's orchestra and the Holy Spirit is teaching us. He's teaching us how to play ever more skillfully with greater understanding of the part God has given us. He's teaching us ever more detail of the melody to make our playing more and more beautiful. He's not playing for us. He's teaching us. And also at the same time, he's weaving our ability to play into God's symphony. There's this bigger piece of music going along, aside from our clumsy or virtuosic playing. (laughs) There's a bigger symphony going on. And as we join with the Holy Spirit, he not only teaches us, but he weaves our thinking into all that God is doing. Sometimes he even helps us to understand the big picture, the big symphony, and hear the music so we can see our place more clearly. So God says, Along those lines, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The psalmist writes, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The Proverbs say, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit will guide us and teach us. So when we pray, we come for guidance. We get guidance. We bring our petitions to him and say, what shall I do? Waiting on him, thinking about it in his presence, waiting for the Holy Spirit to help you think it out. You will experience God's help. Saying to him, Lord, I don't understand, the Holy Spirit will illumine your mind. Facing a problem at work or facing some confrontational situation you don't know how to deal with, pray, God will give you wisdom. He'll teach you. Some intractable uh, issue in your marriage or with your children, he will show you what to do. He'll teach you. 
like Jesus, you know, this all overwhelming pressure from your life. What shall you do? You want to know? Pray. Alone with God. Which job do you want to take? Should you take? Pray. Not so God can just give you the direct answer, but so he can talk to you about it and teach you and help you to grow as his child. So that he can have a conversation with you. We need to do that. We need space and time alone with God. Deliberate and focused time. Corrie Ten Boom said, uh, prayer should be your steering wheel, not your spare wheel, which I thought was quite good. So that's why private prayer is so important. You want to love like Christ, to live as God wants you to live, to know his will and choose it freely, then you need to pray alone with God. You'll experience his love, find a son-like love for him there. You'll overflow with the Holy Spirit's power and wisdom there. So just some brief applications. I think the key thing in prayer, if you're thinking about how to do this, is intention Intention and focus. Be deliberate in your prayer. Don't just do it out of habit. And focus on God. That's the thing I struggle most with. I actually, I, most of my life I've struggled to make time to pray. I don't actually struggle with that very much anymore. But I do struggle to focus. Often, seconds into prayer, my mind is running off in different directions. Think about all the things I've, I have to do today. Prayer, uh, intention and focus. So, you know, uh, you can have a Bible reading plan. You can read four chapters of the Bible and it can just go in one, I was going to say in one ear and out the other. Bible reading plans don't work like that, do they? Because you're normally reading them. So in one eye and out of the other. <laughs> you can just skim over it. You know, you can do uh, quiet prayer before God. You can do set prayers. All these different ways of praying are, f- are fine. I'd affirm any of those. I wouldn't say there's one particular way to pray. But the key thing that makes a difference is focus and intention. It's, it's this thing called recollection where we gather ourselves and remember I'm in the presence of God alone with him for a specific purpose. And it takes a bit of effort. You don't need a desert. You don't need to go to a lonely place like Jesus. You don't need to find a uh, anything like that. But what you do need is intention and focus. You need a routine where you can do that. Someone said, um, and you need to be practical as well. I heard someone say recently, um, because of smartphones, when we're alone, we're never alone. And when we're with people, we're always alone because we're always looking at our screens. It's so easy to be distracted by technology and the, the press of um, all the innovations around us. We've got to think of opportunities to pray, which for most of you, frankly, will come in the morning. It's a bit like um, those precious moments when um, we were at Wakehurst the other day and these birds were feeding off people's hands. It just doesn't happen very often. There's a, a little sparrow comes around. You've got to think of moments to pray when you think, Oh, now's a really good time to pray. It's like that. They're precious. Once it flies away, you're not going to get that chance another day, uh, for the rest of the day. Take that opportunity to pray. So, intention and focus. Secondly, let me challenge you this. What idols are stopping you from praying? So if prayer is vital, if it's a necessity, if prayer is food, not just going to the hospital, then we need it to live as God wants us to. That means whatever stops you from spending time alone with God is an idol. Even really important things. Uh, D.L. Moody said this, if you have so much business to attend to that you have no time to pray, depend on it that you have more business on hand than God ever intended you to have. 
If you saw someone whose job meant they were too busy to eat, you would tell them, get a new job. If you saw someone who spent so much time on work or in a relationship or with their kids that they couldn't find time to sleep properly, you would urge them to think about, you know, you need to change the way you're living. If you're too busy to pray, I'm urging you, if you're too busy to spend time alone with God, whatever it is that's stopping you needs to stop. Face up to your idols and smash them, burn them, bury them, just get rid of them. Third encouragement, let me, or third application, let me encourage you about prayer. You can do it. It's possible. Because private prayer, alone with God, is necessary. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and this is like the 144th sermon you've heard on prayer life. And 143 times, it has made almost no difference. Or you've gone away and tried something for a week or so, and it hasn't happened. Let me tell you, because prayer is a necessity, you can do it. You know, people think that committing to prayer uh, alone with God is somehow it's going to mess them up, that it's going to throw their whole life out of balance, it's going to ask of them sacrifices they cannot possibly give, it's going to increase their stress or decrease their time or turn them into a religious maniac, they're going to end up sitting on a, you know, a pillar in the middle of the desert or something like that, like some people did, or leave you exhausted or holy. It won't! Because it's necessary, it's natural. If you spend time alone with God, you will find yourself exhilarated, feeling like Jesus. When people say, are you doing okay? You're like, yeah, I have got food you do not know about. That's what it's like when we make time. Because all the stuff we've talked about today, you will be more yourself when you spend time alone with God than if you don't. That also means that there's a way for you to pray that really suits you. Have confidence in that fact. Your personality, your situation in life, your circumstances, there is a way to spend time alone with God. So persevere in finding out how to do it. Do not give up. Do not give up. You will find a way to make this happen if you don't already. And if if you've given up in the past, try again. Martin Luther said, uh, the less I pray, the harder it gets. The more I pray, the better it gets. Just have confidence. I completely agree with that in my experience. And I'd encourage you to, if you if you find it hard to pray, you'll probably feel disillusioned about it. But the more you do it, the better it gets. Keep trying. You'll find a way of praying that suits you. You know, mornings are good. It's not the law. It doesn't say in the Bible you have to pray in the morning. But for most people, I would recommend getting up. It's easy to be alone. It's easy to find quiet. You know, traffic's not whizzing past the house or whatever. Um, you know, but there are circumstances, jobs, illnesses, work commitments, stages in family life that mean that's not always possible. But there will be a way for you to do it. Okay, fifth, finally, final application. Do it! <laughs> Make time to spend time alone with God. Don't fudge it. It's worth it. I hope that in those first three points about we need healing, we need God's strength, we need God's guidance, I want to make a decent case for you why it's the right thing to do. But can you get a grasp on, a sense of how worthwhile it is? Have I managed to do that a little bit? (laughs) Do you want to love like Jesus? Or is your life like the slightly disappointing gravity-powered roller coaster? 
Are you like the little kid sputtering out of the water? Always overwhelmed, always panicked at what's next. Do you never find time to confess and be real with God? Where do you do that? To know his healing touch. What life do you want to live? That's the question. What life do you want to live? You, if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. Made for communion with him in his image. Not having private prayer alone with God is like, it's like having access to the royal physician, but you never call him when you're sick. It's like you live in a palace, but you never go to the treasury to get any money. It's like you share digs with the king of kings. And every day he calls you to his throne room for a private audience to listen tenderly to you and to pour out his heart to you. But you never come. Look at what Mark shows us of Jesus. The dam has burst, but he is not drowning. The storm rages, but he is listening to the still, small voice. In the midst of the overwhelming demands of life, he's going out to be still and quiet and alone with the Father. Let's go with him.